0: It's all right with you guys if we do something a little different today. I had a plan B, kind of plan, sort of plan, not really plan, but uh, uh, with not knowing what was going to happen and all that kind of stuff in the series. When you're doing the series and stuff, I like to make sure as many people can be here because especially if you miss what I was going to teach today, next week will be more difficult. So I'm going to hold off on that and I'm just going to teach something. Um, One of the questions I get asked all the time is how do we know that the Bible is real? Not realize that it's the book, you know, or that it's, it's, it's God's word is really what it comes down to. Because there are tons of holy books that are out there. Tons of them. And uh, a year ago, I got asked to go speak at a church in Manhattan, Kansas. A friend of mine pastors down there, he'd just taken over the church. And as you guys know, I dabble in apologetics and do a lot of stuff like that. And they were a word of faith church. And if that means anything to you, what it means to, uh, to me, is means that they have a love and desire for God. They believe in the supernatural, no question about that. But why they believe in it, no foundation. They believe in it because they've been told and they've experienced it. And that's not necessarily a bad place to start, but you can't live there. Because you know who else tells me that they experience the presence of God? Mormons. I had a young lady in our youth ministry one time who said that she and her church, being the Mormon church, experienced the presence of God like no other place. Now, how is that possible? Because, as you know, Mormon is not Christianity. They are polar opposites. They do not believe the same. They, do not, they believe in, that they will become a god, that Jesus was the brother of Satan, that the god of our universe um, was a human, so to speak, at one point and earned his way to godhood. So it's not the same thing at all. It's not even close. And so it's like, well, how can they say that? They also know that they are correct because of divine intervention and in what they believe. They believe that that basically by the confirmation of the Spirit, that what they believe is true about the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and their version of the King James Bible. It is not the same. If you compare the two, they're night and day different. And so when you, you get into that kind of stuff, they're on the same level as a lot of the charismatic world is. There's no foundation in Scripture, and that's scary. There's also no reason to why we believe what we believe. And so a year ago, this friend of mine called me up and he said, would you please come down here? I need you to do what you do. I need you to talk to my church. I want you to explain some of the different things that we know how Scripture is true. And so in doing this, I just took the Bible... I didn't go outside of Scripture, so to speak. I didn't look all over the place. I didn't bring in archaeological. I didn't bring in textual criticism so much. I just said, how can we look at Scripture and see that this thing is divinely inspired and is written by the hand of God? And so that's what I did. And so I'm going to skip around a little bit. Um, This... What I intended, I try to usually stay under 45 minutes with this. I think we went over an hour with it. Um, but, but I wanted to make sure that they understood. And so just out of the beginning here, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word God-breathed there. I mean, when you think about that, what does that mean? It means that God himself, you think about when he created man, what did he do? He breathed the breath of life. In other words, he gives life to that individual. No different here. He gives life to the word. And so we've got some quotes here. It is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God in the Bible. This is George Washington speaking. Was it important to him? Absolutely. He didn't say that you shouldn't govern a nation without God in the Bible. He says it's impossible to govern a nation, to rightly govern a nation. You certainly can do it, but you can't do it right. Here's another one, Abraham Lincoln, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Now, Abraham Lincoln wasn't the strongest believer. He had a son that was killed, uh, or died at a very young age and really began to question things and stuff. It was during the Civil War that he really gave his life to Christ. As a matter of fact, he called for a day of fasting and prayer in the middle of the Civil War. I think there was something like seven battles, and, and, and the Union had only won two of them and gotten their tails handed to them on, on five of them. And so he calls for a national day of fasting and prayer to seek God because he's like, something's not right. And as soon as he did that, the entire war shifted. Out of the next seven, they won five, and And the uh, Union Army won too, and the whole war changed, and it was shortly after that. But what happened? The man came and said, hey, we've got to do things the way that God tells us to do things. Here's another one. Patrick Henry, the Bible is worth all the other books that have ever been written. That is a lot of books. He doesn't say in U.S. history. He says ever. There's something about this that our early fathers understood. Here's Napoleon. The Bible is no near book. But it is a living creature with a power that conquers all who oppose it. Guess what, folks? Napoleon is not what we would call a Christian. He was not a good dude. But he recognized something in it. He recognized the power of the Bible. And so when we look at these different things, we have to ask ourselves the question, why do we believe what we believe? And ultimately, why do we believe that this Bible is true? Now, you guys know that I am a scripture guy. I, I mean, I teach. That is what God's gifted me to do. Um, it, it just, like even in the sermon that I was going to do, I'm telling you what, studying this week, there was some stuff that jumped out of the page to me this week that had never happened before. And I'm reading the same passages that I have read I don't know how many countless times in dealing with the life of Christ. And it never ceases to amaze me because I feel like I'm fairly thorough when I, when I study. And yet all the time it's like, huh. Well, that's interesting. Even this morning, as I was sitting We normally have a Bible study at 845. I was the only one here. I'm drinking my coffee. I'm just sitting there reading. The Lord's just showing me some other stuff. And I'm thinking, my goodness, I don't know if I wanted to preach what I had planned or had plan B. So that would have been plan C. So we didn't do that. But how do we know that this is supernaturally divine? Some of you guys have seen some of this stuff, okay? But there will be other parts that you haven't, okay? So just bear with me. Now, when we look at this, this is Genesis 5, and I know that's small. I had to condense it down for the way that their, uh, their screens worked there. They are not the most technologically savvy church Uh, That you'd ever seen. As a matter of fact, going into the service just getting this to show up, we were like on a countdown, like, I don't know if this is going to work because it wasn't working. So here we go. In Genesis chapter 5, we have the first of many genealogies. Now for you young guys, you guys have seen this before because we went through this uh, uh, recently. We've been going through the book of Genesis in our youth group. But uh, we've got all of these names, Adam and Seth and Enosh and Canaan and Mahalel and Jared and Enoch and all of these different guys. And Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And, and we're going there, and this guy begot this guy, and on this date, and he was this old, and then he died in this age, and all of this other stuff. The thing we have to understand is that we need to know that there is nothing in the Bible that is there by happenstance. It is all with a purpose, number one. Number two is that there is something unique here. They call this, the Hebrew rabbis in the studies of the scripture call it a Ramez, R-E-M-E-Z. R-E-M-E-Z. And in other words, it's a, it's a marker of something that just basically screams out, dig here. Kind of like the X marks the spot. There's a lot of things that we read in Scripture that we don't always understand, and I think that's a fair assessment. But if we begin to understand the context and the mind of God and how this thing was put together, then we begin to dig through these things. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say this again. These names here are not translated. They are transliterated, which means we spell them in English how they sound in Hebrew, Adam being Adam. Examples of that, the word hallelujah. It's, we spell it like it sounds. Amen is another one. Those are examples of that. So when we see these names together, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, that's how we say it. They would say Yarad, and I'm not even sure how they'd say half of these things, but Adam, you know. Anyway, but when we get into what these names mean, because every name had a meaning. Alright, your name has a meaning. Most of the time I think they make them up. You guys ever been to the truck stops when you're traveling and they got the little cards with your name on it and it says, oh, it means this, right? You notice it never means something negative like idiot or, you know, moron or anything like that. Why? Because those don't sell. So I think they're making half of that stuff up. I don't know. But, but anyway, so look at this. Here we've got Adam. His name means man. Then we get to Seth, means appointed. Enosh, mortal. Tenan, sorrow. Mahalel, the blessed God. Jared, shall come down. Enoch, teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech, despairing. And Noah means rest. Now, that's all good. Why do we care what these different names mean? Well, when you put them together is when it gets interesting. All right? When you line all of these up and you read it as a sentence, Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. What is that? That's the gospel. It was spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, right? I will send the seed of the woman, and he will crush the head of the serpent, right? The very beginning. That God himself will come down. Man is appointed mortal sorrow because their death and destruction is brought in because of sin. But the blessed God, Jesus himself, will come down to this earth Teaching that his death on the cross at ultimate resu- resurrection will bring all of those who are lost in this sorrow will bring them rest. Now, you can't convince me that a bunch of Hebrew rabbis and scribes would hide something like this in the text on purpose. This is an example of the handwriting of the Holy Spirit. How God himself just kind of put that in there. Now, would you have caught that if you were reading that in English? No, you wouldn't have. I didn't either I got this from a guy named Chuck Missler that's where I first learned of it he got it from a book written in the 1800s he wasn't around then but but he he found this old book and it's not even in print anymore so he's got an old copy of, of a guy and all he did was begin going through and see, tracing the meanings of these different names it wasn't like he was looking for this. But this is how it works, guys, is that when we see what God does and how he puts these scriptures together, there's so much that we can just say in and of itself, man, this is a powerful book. You cannot do that with any other book that's ever been written. And that's what's so amazing about it, is that you might be able to put a code here, put something there, and spell out some message. But the continuity of scripture, no way. Now let's look at this, Numbers chapter 2. This is the story... Of of the the golden serpent, if you will, and the Lord spoke to Moses there, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. No, no, no. Excuse me. This is not the golden head. This is laying out the camp. Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting on the east side toward the rising of the sun. Those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp according to their armies. Uh, I lost my place. And his, let's see. Oh, there it is. And Nishan and the son of Amminadab shall be the leader of the children of Judah. And his army was numbered at 74,600. A very specific number, right? It doesn't say about 75,000, it says 74,600. Then those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the and Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, shall be the leader of the children of Issachar, and his army was numbered at 54,400. Then comes the tribe of Zebulon, and Eliab, the son of Helon, shall be the leader of the children of Zebulon, and his army was numbered at 57,400. All who were numbered according to their armies on the forces with Judah, 186,400, these shall break camp first. On the south side shall the standard of the forces with Reuben, according to their armies, and the leader of the children of Reuben shall be Elizar, excuse me, the son of Shadur. And his army was numbered at 46,500. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon. And the leader of the children of Simeon shall be Shalumiel, the son of that guy. And his army was numbered at 59,300. Then comes the tribe of Gad. And the leader of the children of Gad shall be Eliasif, the son of Reel and his army was numbered at 45,650 all who were numbered according to the armies of the forces with Reuben 151,450 they shall be the second to break camp and the tabernacle of meeting shall move out with the camp of the Levites in the middle of the camps and they as they camp, so they shall, not, they shall move out everyone in his place by their standards. On the west side shall be the standard of the forces of Ephraim. According to the armies, and the leader of the children of Ephraim shall be Elishema, the son of Amihud. And his army was numbered at 40,500. Next to him comes the tribe of Manasseh. And the leader of the children of Manasseh shall be Gamaliel, the son of pedizer And his army was numbered at 32,200. Then comes the tribe of Benjamin. And the leader of the children of Benjamin shall be Abaddon, the son of Gideoni. And his army was numbered at 35,400. All who were numbered according to their armies of the forces with Ephraim, 108,100. They shall be the third to break camp. The standard of the forces with Dan shall be on the north side according to their armies. And the leader of the children of Dan shall be Ahizer. The son of Amishaddai. And his army was numbered at 62,700. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, and the leader of the children of Asher shall be Pejiel, the son of Ochran And his army was numbered at 41,500. Then comes the tribe of Naphtali. The leader of the children of Naphtali shall be Ahira, the son of Enon. And his army was numbered at 53,400. All who were numbered to the forces with Dan, 157,600. They shall break camp last with their standards. These are the ones who were numbered of the children of Israel by their father's house, All who were numbered according to their armies of the forces were six hundred and three thousand five hundred and fifty. But the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel just as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus, the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards and so they broke camp, each one by his family, according to their fathers' houses. Okay, we made it. Basically, we have the twelve tribes of Israel the Levites being excluded, and they're talking about the specifics of how they lay out their camp according to what God is telling them. And the one thing that you need to understand about this is they did not take these things lightly. They followed them to a T. If it said to the east, you went to the east. You didn't go to the southeast. You didn't go to the northeast. You went to the east. Now, this here is the tabernacle. You can kind of get an idea of what this would look like. You've got the tabernacle. The gate there is facing to the east. Uh, this is the gate. Let me find that right there. You've got the outer court and then, of course, the inner court. The outer court is where you had the, uh, the brazen altar and the brazen labor. This is where they were sacrificed. That's where the priests would wash. They'd go into the holy place. You had the table of showbread, the uh, golden incense altar, as well as the... Um, the uh, menorah, that's what I'm trying to say. Then pass that through the curtain, you have the most holy place where, the, on the Day of Atonement. The high priest could go in there one day a year. That was it. So this is what's going on. So you can see how they're set up. They're camped all around them, north, south, east, and west. Remember, this is east, and that's where it gets confusing. So now when we look at these, this is the camp of Judah, made up of three tribes. Okay, it gives us the number, 186,400. Then the south side, 151,450. Then we got the Levites. Now, they would be just directly around here, but they weren't counted because the Levites didn't take a census. When they went into the promised land, they were not given specific territories, but they were given cities inside the territories as God had commanded. So this is what that would look like right around that um, tabernacle. Then you get here. The camp of Ephraim, which is on the west side, so that's the opposite end of the gate. You've got 108,100 total. Then the camp of Dan, which is on the north side, 157,600. So adding all of these together, these are each individual camp. When you put them all together, you get these totals. That's where they come from. Now again, the thing to remember is that these numbers are not abstract. This is specific. It was put there by God. So when you laid this out, as I said they would be very specific okay not to the northwest not to the northeast strictly to the north we have to understand that now here's the thing when they would march out into battle they would go in this formation they would continue on there because this is how god told them to do it so if you were standing up on a mountain and they were coming from the east marching towards you or if you got up in a helicopter example this is what it would look like now you think that's a coincidence that it happens to make the shape of a cross I don't think that's a coincidence of course the cross was not invented at the time of this writing the cross was not invented when it was prophesied 500 years prior to the death of Jesus uh, that it would be used by the Romans that it was prophesied he would die hanging on a cross essentially okay so how did this get here why does it happen to work out this way maybe it's the hand of God is that at least a possibility these are some of the examples that I talk about how we can use scripture and just doing a little digging around we can see that this thing has the hand of God on it now let's look at this one numbers chapter 21 Then they journeyed from Mount Hor, this is the Israelites, by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loaves this worthless bread. What's the worthless bread? It's the manna, right? Had no flavor. Should have buttered it. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, but we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. It shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, that's weird. Okay? You get bit by a snake, don't go stare at another snake, okay? That's not going to help you out. But here is something specific about God. He's, he's telling you, all right, that's fine. He sends these serpents in judgment. Now, I've seen artist's rendition of this when it says, fiery serpents of little snakes slithering around that are lit on fire. That is not what was happening there. The bite burned and would ultimately kill them from the venom that was in them. So God gives them specifics on how to do this. There is no reason given. This thing is never mentioned again. In any other part of the Old Testament, except when King Hezekiah comes on the scene because the Israelites begin to worship it, so he has to destroy it. So it's still around there several hundred years later. But other than that, there is no explanation given whatsoever as to why this worked, why God said to do it, or why it was even there. Until here with Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 1, and we know John chapter 3 because of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We know that verse, right? But I don't know if you knew this. There's some verses before that. There's also some verses after that. We should probably read those too. We're gonna read the ones before it today. So here we go, verse one. To him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but it cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Now I want to just pause here for a moment and make a a point of clarity. Born of the water and born of the spirit. A lot of times we think that born of the water is baptism. That is not what it's talking about. It is talking about natural birth. You're in a Uh, A jacuzzi, basically, for nine months. Life is good. Everything's great. You get three square meals a day. Mama's taking care of everything. The world is your oyster. And then they break that water and make you come into here, and then it's minus seven degrees out, and we're sitting in church, right? Stay in that womb as long as you can. But he's asking a fair question. How can I get back into my mother's womb? Now, I don't know if you know this for sure, but a baby is small, and a grown man is not. Right, No women are signing back up for that. Now come on back in. Life is good. We'll take care of you. On top of that, when they're still small and they come out, you're not like, oh, I wish he was still in there. No. Well, maybe when he's crying at 3 a.m. and all that kind of stuff. But So born of the water is birth. Born of the Spirit is what we call salvation. All right? So I just want to make that very clear from a theological standpoint. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? He's scolding him. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now watch verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then we go into verse 16, right? Okay. Now, look what he did here. This is the first time in all of Scripture that that serpent is brought up with any significance. Like I said, Hezekiah mentions it, that he has to destroy it because the Israelites are worshiping it, which was kind of their, their pattern. But here Jesus makes a connection with himself and the serpent. Why does he do that? Well, when you study this out, the serpent, what do we think of when we think of the serpent? We think of sin, right? It's a type of sin. It was made of bronze. What do we think of bronze? Judgment, right? When they brought the animals to the temple to be sacrificed, what did they sacrifice them on? A bronze altar. That is where the judgment of sin would take place. That's why everything outside of the tabernacle and the temple were bronze. Everything inside was gold. Because once you go inside, now you are in the presence of God and everything is pure. You guys see that? He's making a connection. This thing was a type of him. Now remember, there is about a 1,500 year span between the time of Christ and the writing of Moses. Do you think Jesus just abstractly was thinking one day, hey, you know what? I'm going to throw out this random fact out of the book of Numbers to connect it to myself. Then they'll know that I'm the Messiah. You think he was thinking that? Of course not. And on top of that, how about the writers here, right? How about John? Now, remember, he's writing this later in life to try to bring some correction to some wanky beliefs that were going on there about what happened in Jesus' time. So he's writing this thing down. You think he's sitting there studying one day. He was reading through Numbers. He's like, you know what would be cool? is if I connect this random metal serpent up on this hill and connect it with Christ, that will mess with those people, you know, in a couple thousand years. Absolutely not. Again, what we see here is the hand of God in the beginning, putting all of this stuff together. You guys see how this stuff works? This is not a book that is just full of self-help diagnosis, right? If I hear I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me one more time, I'm going to throw up. Right? We're, we're stepping up to bat in a baseball game we're like, I can do all things through Christ. Yeah, Paul's sitting in prison as he's writing that. Little difference. But what we've done is we've taken our Bible and we've watered it down to the point that is unrecognizable. We don't even know what we have anymore. This thing is supernatural. All right. Now, 2 Peter 1. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, why does he make that statement? In other words, he's like, I'm not just writing down stories. And I'm not just telling you stuff off the top of my head. We saw it. We were there. We saw everything that was going on. They were eyewitnesses. All right. That's key. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how when Jesus was resurrected, he was first seen by Cephas, then by the 12, and then by over 500 people who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They saw him dead, then they saw him alive. Why does he put that in there? Because he's not just making this stuff up, right? These are eyewitnesses. If you're driving along and you see a car wreck, what are you? You're an eyewitness. They ask you, if you stop, they ask you, tell us what you saw. If you've ever been through a bank robbery, I hope you haven't, but if you've ever been in there and you make it out, the police question every single person. Why? They want to know what went on, what was said, what did they look like, what did you hear, all of that different kind of stuff. That's important. Now, when we get into some of this stuff, we get into these undesigned coincidences, what we call them, is that in one passage of Scripture, it says something, okay, just kind of there. Not really given a lot of clarity. But another passage of Scripture will either confirm or explain something that is going on here without overtly doing it. In other words, they're not seeking to answer a question that was left. They're just simply saying, okay, you know, they're just telling what happened. All right. Now, we see this here in Luke 23. It says, And so then the whole multitude of them across, arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Now there's a couple of things that are going on. Remember. We talked about this uh, Christmas Eve, which was last weekend. Okay, yeah, there we go. That went long ago. When we talked about when, remember when the Magi came in and they went up to King Herod? They said, Hey, where's the king of the Jews? Who was the king of the Jews? Herod was. It's not who they were looking for. The whole city's up in an uproar in Jerusalem. All right, so very likely Pilate said, Hey, are you that guy? Are you the guy that was causing all these problems? But here's another thing He says, Are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it is as you say. So he, what did he say? Yeah, that's me. And then he says, I find no fault in this man. Now here's a problem. He's basically claiming that I am the king. What happens when you try to overthrow a kingdom? Instant death. What did Pilate say? I find no fault in this man. These are contradictory things. If you understand the way they work, to be the king of the Jews means you had to be Roman. And so if you're claiming that you're a king, it is instant death. But he finds no fault. Why is that? Well... We've got to go to another passage of Scripture to get the answer. John 18. Then they led Jesus from uh, Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. The Praetorium is a place where, the room, uh, where Pilate would be. is this big place. But if the Jews are getting ready for Passover, have to stay clean. To uh, or partake in Passover by going in there, a house of the Gentiles, they would be unclean. That's why that's talking about that. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So the answer said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. In other words, he's like, just take our word for it. He's a bad guy okay they have to have permission from the roman army or from the roman rulers to put jesus to death they have to have their permission because they were able to follow the jewish law the law that god had given them with one exception they could not enact corporal punishment that is why they had to go to pilate in the first place had this been a time in which they weren't under the rule of somebody else if somebody claimed to be the messiah and he was not the messiah then they would put him to death instantly. If somebody prophesied falsely, they were a false prophet, they would be put to death. But they cannot do this at this point. They have to have uh, Rome on board with them. So, then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Why did they say that? The reason I just told you. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the Praetorium again, called Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, "Are you a king then?" Jesus answered, "You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. Uh, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, "What is truth?" And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. You see how John gives a little bit more information here? Why did Pilate find no fault? He asked him the king of the Jews. He said, yes, I am, but my kingdom's not of this world. So Pilate's probably thinking, well, the guy's a little crazy, but he's the Jew's problem. He's not my problem. In other words, yes, he's claiming yes. But if you read it just in Luke, you're thinking, well, he just admitted it. Why is he not guilty? You see, these are undesigned. John was not trying to clear up the mud left in Luke at all. He was just simply writing down uh, what happened in a little bit more detail this time. All right? Now let's look at another one. Here we go Matthew 26. And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, the high priest's courtyard, and he went and sat in the service to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false testimony against Jesus, uh, against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. And said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And the answer said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and the others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now, here's where it gets weird. Okay? Again, they're setting Jesus up. He admits that he's the Messiah, which is blasphemous unless you're the Messiah right? It's a bold claim. You have to get that in your mind. They have been waiting for thousands of years, and I'm going to go into a lot more detail of this next week, assuming it's not minus 17 degrees, okay? But next week, I'll go into a lot more detail of what this is, what's going on here. But the bottom line here is this, is that he claims to be the Messiah, punishable by death. So they're sitting around having a conversation, then they come up and they start hitting him. And then they say, hey, why don't you tell us who just hit you? Now, if Paul walks up to me, and he smacks me in the face, and they ask me, who hit you? It's kind of a stupid question, right? Because I watched him do it. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't the act of surprise. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, it doesn't make any sense. So why would he make that statement? This is where we get a little bit more clarity going somewhere else. Luke 22. Now, the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him and having blindfolded him they struck him on the face and asked him saying prophesy who is the one who struck you you guys see what happened the other account didn't tell us about him being blindfolded now was luke here trying to explain oh they they left this a little unclear let me fill in the gaps no they're not how do we know that for sure luke was not jewish he's a gentile right the other ones were Jews. They were writing to Jews, for Jews, by Jews. Okay? This guy, he's a doctor. He's a Gentile doctor. He's working for a guy named Theophilus to write a more orderly account, kind of put down everything that was going on, and he's just writing down what was told. Here's a little piece of information that is giving us the key to unlock the unclear part before. You guys see how these things intersect, how they work together? How about this one? Then he began to, Matthew 11, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were, you were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. This is Matthew chapter 11. Now, what we don't have here is, is, is what are the miracles that happened? It doesn't tell us. But when you say woe, I mean, think about the... Uh, book of Revelation. We'll be going through that on Wednesday night, right? When it's woe, it's bad. Like, woe isn't like, ooh, this might get slightly uncomfortable. No, like, this is major. And he is basically telling Churazin and Bethsaida, woe to you. They would have repented and in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, they, they'd, have, they'd have caved a long time ago. Well, then we go to John chapter 6. Now the Passover a feast of the Jews was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, "Where shall we buy bread that these may eat?" So, Passover's coming up. They've got a bunch of people they got to feed. Then he turns to Philip. Well, Why did he turn to Philip? I promise these two intersect eventually. Who are the major players in all of the New Testament? Peter, James, John, pick any of them. Not Philip. Why would he turn to Philip? asking where they can buy bread. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Come on now, cooperate, you know you want to. There we go. Luke 9, and the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to a city called Bethsaida. So you have Bethsaida mentioned again. John 1, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So why did Jesus turn to Philip when they were in Bethsaida getting ready to feed all these people? He's from there, right? Do you know how many times somebody has stopped me and said, hey, how do you get up to the courthouse? I still don't know. Like I said, well, you go over here. Oh, what road is that? Uh, I don't know. It's like six or seven blocks that way. And Five or six up that way and stuff. But you go to somebody who's from here, no problem, right? I mean, all the time somebody, this is the epitome of small town life. Oh, you go to so-and-so's house and you hang a left. Okay, well, that's great. Who's so-and-so and which house belongs to them? Makes no sense to me, right? If you want directions in Rockport, you turn to somebody from Rockport. Why did he go here? Again, John is just clearing up the mud. Why did he turn to Philip? Because Philip was from Bethsaida. So, this gives us the answer to why he turned to Philip, but it doesn't tell us exactly what took place, except that we know that this is where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. It took place in Bethsaida. And so, why does he say, woe to you? In other words, an incredible miracle took place, and you still refuse to believe. That's why he says, woe to you. There are tons of these guys. Absolutely tons of these. Now, Let's look at this. Let's go back in time a little bit. Let's go to the time of David and Bathsheba. We know the story. David's a king. Things were going pretty good for him. It was a time in which the kings went out to war, but David stayed home. He looks out from his rooftop and he sees a chick sitting out there. Her name is Bathsheba. She's bathing. He likes what he sees. He calls her over. Okay? We know the story. Has an affair. Sets up uh, Uriah to die. And of course it works. Then Judgment comes, the baby that was between the two of them dies, they eventually have Solomon, they get married. We know the whole story. But there's this whole list of characters, Eliam, Ahithophel, and Absalom, that we don't talk about. Now, times prior to this, I mean after this, when, when David's kingdom is being usurped, now the advice of Ahithophel which he gave in those days was as if one had inquired of the oracle of God. So as was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Now, Ahithophel was David's right hand man. He was the most trusted guy. Um, he was with David. He's one of David's mighty men. And he loved David. And so you have this guy here mentioned. But when we get into this, at the time when we went from 1 Samuel to 2nd Samuel, at the time of which David's kingdom is being taken over by his son. Remember, Absalom kind of created a coup. And he, uh, he's getting all the people on his side. Then he comes and David catches word of it. He does not want to attack his own son. Absalom is his son. And so they flee and they head out. And then Absalom goes in and he takes over the kingdom. Now watch what happens here in verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. And Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Now this guy is kind of a spy for David. So Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, but whom the Lord Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. So he's saying, hey. You know, I'll I'll, I'll stay with you. It's whoever God puts in charge. I'm not just loyal to David. I'm I'm loyal to God's man. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? And as I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. Okay, we got Absalom and Ahithophel. He's looking for advice from Ahithophel. Ahithophel gave David advice. He was one of those guys that everybody turned to. He says, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now picture this. The palace, the advice from Ahithophel to David's son Absalom, go up on the roof, set up a tent, and... Have sex with your father's concubines. These were a a wife of David's, basically. They were a little lower in in standard, but but they were still a wife of David. Why would he tell them to do them? Ahithophel was David's right-hand man. He has turned against him, and the Bible never tells us why. It never says, oh, David ticked him off. Oh, you know, he didn't get a 3% cost of living raise. It doesn't say anything like that. David took care of his men. I mean, he did a good job for the most part. But here we've got him. He's given it. So he says, I want you to go up there on the rooftop. Now, why on the roof is the other part? Why would you? I mean, there's just so much about this that makes absolutely zero sense. Now, one thing to understand is that when a kingdom is being usurped, one of the first things that the usurper did was go to the king's wife. In other words, he is staking his claim. This is now mine. As a crude analogy, it's kind of like when a dog is, is peeing on an area, he's marking territory. That's essentially what's going on here. Um, that's part of it. But the other part of it is not so clear. Because to get to this one of why this is there, why Absalom, uh, well, we know why Absalom did his thing, but why fell told him to do it, you've got to dig around a little bit. 2 Samuel 23, 34. Eliphlet, the son of Ahasbi, the son of the Mecathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the uh, Gilanite, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 and all. These were some of David's mighty men, okay? We see these names here Eliam, Ahithophel, Uriah. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Of Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam. Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. Ahithophel has Eliam. Eliam has Bathsheba who marries Uriah. Bathsheba is the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Why was he upset with David? He knew what happened with between David and Bathsheba, and Uriah. Why was he mad? Because basically David took advantage of his granddaughter, had his grandson killed, and then married his granddaughter. That's why he was mad. You guys see that? Do you think that's there by coincidence? Absolutely not. It's when you start digging this stuff around. This is what I'm saying. This is a very powerful book. Very powerful book. We have to understand and We have to look at it in light of what it is. When we begin to dig this stuff out, then we can say, okay, there's some confirmation here. Now, I went kind of quickly through all of this for the sake of time. I'm going to get you guys out of here early today. I hope that's all right. I hope you don't get too upset with me about that and, and go home to your warm houses and, and all of that stuff. But it's so powerful when you begin to see how God orchestrated the scriptures. Now, what you didn't see... It's me going and do textual criticism. Well, we have these artifacts, and we've got this, that, and the other thing. Um, You know, we can see that the scriptures are true based on that. We just use the Bible. There's no other book in existence that can do what this Bible does. It can't. It's impossible. Because human writers could never put a code together like that. Pieces where you have to dig. This very thing here is just there because it's mentioned because it's true. And that's the thing that we've got to understand. If we can get it in our heads that God's word is true, that it is God-breathed, then we can begin to believe that every promise in it is true. So the promise of salvation, absolutely true. Why is it true? Well, it's mentioned in Scripture. and It was a promise of the, of the Messiah coming to the Jewish people and that it would be opened up to all people. In other words, we, how do we know that? We go back to the time of Abraham to see that, Through you, all the nations will be blessed. And so if that's true, then we can believe in our salvation. And we can be secure in that belief because it's in the work. And then also from that are the the things that we'll call them the benefits that come with it. The, The benefits of prosperity and the promise there. That if we use wisdom with our money and that we, we give to God and we put Him first in that, that He will bless everything that we put our hand to. And then the promise of health, that we don't have to be sick all the time. That we can walk in a, in a healing, prosperous uh, uh, way so that we can go into this world and be an example to God. And then also, on top of that, we can take that very thing that God has given us and give it to other people. That when we lay hands on the sick, they will recover. I mean, there's, there's all these things that God has promised in His Word, and we just kind of read it like, oh, you know, that's nice. But we don't really believe it. We simply agree with it. Yeah, we agree that that's all good and stuff, but we don't really believe it. I'm telling you what, if it's in the Word, then it is true. I could do this for an hour more easily. I'm not going to do that to you today, Okay. But, but what I want you guys to see is how powerful this book is. This thing is so easy to confirm and see how God has done everything. Amen. God's good. Amen.